you will be happy to know that I would have received an A on the paper that I just wrote for my missions class if I had completed the assignment. <laughs> Do I have any fellow students who have also would have gotten an A if they had done the entire... Stu- yes, yes, yes. <laughs> One of the things we are supposed to be learning in the seminary classes I'm taking is how to use the academic databases in the library, the library website. So when I was finishing my paper, which was nearly perfect in every way, <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to get into the, to the stupid databases. You need a password, and it appears I was doing my paper too late at night on the last night that it was due, and I couldn't get the password. So it's the library's fault that I didn't get an A. That must be it. I would have gotten an A, I'm sure. In all of life, doing well avoid, includes avoiding the wrong and doing the right. And nowhere is this more clear than in Scripture. We've been studying communications, godly communication. And we've been looking, first of all, at how Christians are not to communicate. We have learned that godly communication must not be characterized by lying, out-of-control anger, obscenity, or profanity. But God's standard for the believer's words are much higher than just avoiding the wrongs. Sometimes we can create a list of wrongs and say, well, I don't do any of those wrongs, so I must be fine. But God's right standards are so challenging (laughs) that they call us to ever be making progress in our likeness to Christ. Let's read about those right standards, starting in Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. I think verse 29, in some ways, is really a key verse in this passage and an excellent verse to memorize if you never have, because it brings right down into two sentences what needs to stop and what needs to start. In our Christian communication, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what should proceed out of your mouth is words that are, for, that are good for edification, that they may impart grace to the hearers. The corrupt words, we looked at that last week, or a couple of weeks ago, and, and it talks about words that are rotten, words that are like, like old stuff in a refrigerator. They're no good, they should be thrown out, and it includes all kinds of things. But the words we're supposed to have 
are words that are constructive, words that build up. The word edify in the King James and the New King James, the word edify is the same word we get our word edifice from, which means something that is built. In ancient Greek, they they would have used this word to say, I'm going out to build a house. I'm going to construct a house. I'm going to put the two-by-fours and the nails together, and and, uh, I'm going to build a house. God's primary standard for Christian communication is, does it build people up? Are they being strengthened? Are they being encouraged? The Apostle Paul summarized a whole bunch of things in the Christian life in a principle here. Many, all things are lawful for me. Now, now get this right. He wasn't saying that it's okay to sin. The Apostle Paul never would have said that. But what he's saying is, outside of the things that God says are sinful, outside of those things, all things are lawful. It's okay. It's acceptable. There are many things we can choose to do in life that are completely acceptable. But that's not the standard. It's not, is it acceptable? Not everything is helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things build up. You see, we might be tempted to look at our words and say, well, I'm not lying. I'm not swearing or putting out an oath. I'm not using profanity. I'm not talking about things that I shouldn't be talking about. And so everything I say must be okay. No, God's. we might say that this is sort of cleaning the canvas. You know, uh, you, you've scraped away all of the bad stuff. Now there's a, there's a beautiful plain canvas waiting for a picture to be painted on it. And the picture is words that build up. Do our words build people up? Solomon, Solomon put it this way. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Our words may be absolutely true and devoid of certain sinful elements, but the question is, are they true and helpful? John MacArthur put it this way, raw truth is seldom appropriate and it's often destructive. Remember, we looked earlier when we talked about lying at the idea of speaking the truth. How? In love. That's verse 15 of Ephesians 4. And the uh, there's a little piece that doesn't quite come through in the translation in, in the New King James, but it comes through really well in the NIV, which helps us define what it means to be constructive. Here's how the NIV translates this, and I think they get it right from the original language. Do not let any unwholesome talk or corrupt words come out of your mouth. Only what is helpful for building others up. And here's a little phrase that's in the original. According to their needs. According to their needs. Now, God isn't telling us to to say everything everybody wants to hear. That would be according to their needs desires he's talking to us about how we should speak in a way according to what people need philippians 2 gives us the mentality of christ let each of you look out not only for his own interest but look out for the interests of others 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God or having the outward appearance of God, did not consider it something to be clung to as a treasure to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. This great passage that teaches us about Christ's death on the cross, he says, when he was looking at the cross, he didn't say, you know, I like my life in heaven with the angels worshiping me and people on earth worshiping me. I like that just fine. I'm going to stay put. That would be lawful, but not helpful. He looked down at us and he said, these people all need to accept Christ as their Savior. They, or excuse me, they need to have their sins forgiven. And so I've got to go die on the cross so their sins can be forgiven. So he took off that outward appearance of God and he took on a human nature and he went all the way through his human life to the point of a cross so that we could believe in him and have our sins forgiven. Jesus is our model of being others-oriented. Jesus began to be others-oriented when he left the glories of heaven and took on a humble life of a human. He put others first, doing ministry, even when he wanted to rest. Do you remember that episode where he says to the disciples, let's come aside and rest for a while. But a whole bunch of people found them and came and said, oh, minister to us, minister to us. And what did he do? He put himself aside and he ministered to those people. Jesus put others first by being patient with the disciples. We look at Peter's betrayal. How many, us, how many of us might have kicked him to the curb, but not Christ? And Jesus ultimately put others first when he went to the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, despising the shame. He did not enjoy what he had to go through, but there was joy because he knew it would be helpful to us. And so if we're going to speak constructively, we must have a heart and a mind focused on the question, what does this person need to hear? I was in a meeting this week. I was asked to go to a certain public service agency and talk with them about something they, they need to do in the realm of, and it sort of works in the realm of chaplaincy that I'm involved with. And so I went to this meeting, and we were talking about a number of things, including their plan. And, you know, when you get together with people like that, you're always sharing stories about what's gone on here and there. They, there was these two ladies that I was meeting with, and they shared some things, and I shared a story, and then I had another great story to share. Boy, I had a great one, you know. And, it, and they kind of kept talking. And I thought, you know, when you quit talking, I'm going to share this story. <laughs> but I'd also been studying this text right here this week, and the Lord just said, just keep that to yourself. Ask yourself, what do they need to hear? You see, many times we, quote unquote, need to talk. But the question is, what do they need to hear? That's what it means to have constructive communication. Now, sometimes people need to hear things that aren't going to be fun. And, I, I, and we're not saying that every 
time you speak, people are going to jump up and down for joy and go, wow, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but it will be constructive, you see. But it can only be constructive if we say, what needs to be heard by them? What does this person need to hear? Is the point of our talking to be heard? (laughs) Or is the point of our talking to care for others? See, isn't that just a tremendously challenging level? I want to tell my story. (laughs) God says, there's something more important for you to talk about. Godly words are constructive, and then godly words are conductive. Look at Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt word go out of your mouth, only that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. When you talk, do people get grace? You ever thought about that? Well, I was really challenged by this this week. Do we impart grace to people? Look at, Peter tells us one of the ways that grace is imparted. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Well, if that's the, if that's the case, if, if grace is multiplied by the knowledge of Christ, and the knowledge of God, then the question that I have to ask myself is, am the, are the words I'm about to speak somehow based in God's truth, are they, are they conducting God's truth to people? Are these the kind of words that Christ would say in this situation? Now again, sometimes God's words will challenge people. But it still can be bringing grace into their life because it's drawing them to the Lord. I've been challenged this week as I've thought about this question. What do you plan to say when you see people? And I'm going to read a quote here in a minute and you'll you'll understand why. But um, what do you plan to say? Some years ago, a person came into my office just stopped by as they were going past the building and hi how you doing chit chat chit chat and then they said i got a juicy tidbit <laughs> i thought what <sighs> i got a juicy tidbit and i said oh <laughs> and they told me some news from out there in the world not too far away from here and it was public knowledge type stuff but but apparently this person came in in part, to share a juicy tidbit with me. Okay, What do you plan to say when you see people? Now, we all plan to say, hi, how you doing? What's going on? You know, I mean, yeah. But beyond that, what do you plan to say? The truth is, I don't plan very much. Other than I have certain, you know, I, like, like uh, I, I like to say something funny, I like to laugh. I like people to laugh. Sometimes we lead with the normal things of the world. We say, how about those mariners? Or how about those Canucks? Ooh. Or too bad for those Canucks. (laughs) 
What do you plan to say to people? Listen to this quote. And I was just, I, I'm not kidding you when I say I've been so challenged by this, but I, and, and I don't stand here as one who has made much progress toward it, but it really challenged me. This is from Harry Ironside, and uh, Harry Ironside wrote a lot of books. He preached a lot of sermons. He was a well-known pastor, including of the Moody Memorial Church, you know, of a few generations ago. I have known men with whom it was a delight to spend a little time because I never went from their company without learning more of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is a guy who would be really on the level of Billy Graham or somebody like that today. I have never gone from their company without learning more of the Lord Jesus. I am thinking of a friend of mine whose company I have never been in for for more than 10 minutes, but what he would say to me, you know, I was thinking of such and such a scripture, and while I was meditating, the Spirit gave me such and such a thought. He said, when I'm with this man, the conversation never runs for more than 10 minutes before he's sharing a blessing from God's word. And what I'm planning to say when I meet people is a joke. That's just not good enough. And I, and I was thinking about that even as I was going to meet with these two people in this public service organization. I thought, boy, is there some way I could say something scriptural here? <laughs> is there some way I could impart grace to these people? And, and uh, I would challenge you that if nothing else, having the question and meditating on it will change your conversation. What are you planning to speak? And is what you're planning to speak going to impart grace to people? Is it going to pull them on toward the Lord? Godly words are not only constructive or upbuilding, but they conduct the grace of God from Him to the world around us. A third thing that we understand here is this. Godly words are compassionate. In Ephesians 4.31, we have a whole series of things to stop in our communication. We've already looked at that in a previous week. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now here's the positive. Here's the exchange. Stop all that stuff in verse 31 and start what's in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. The word tender-heartedness, or in the NIV, it's the word compassionate, comes from the Greek word that means the internal organs in here. And the concept that the Greeks had, the reason they used that word, was when you have a, a connection with another human being, whether it's a, a romantic love relationship, or maybe somebody hurts themselves and you feel for them, there, there's, you know, our body responds, or or for that matter, when you're worried and you're stressed, you get tight in here. And, and so they, they believed that the emotions resided down in here. And so uh, this word is a, is a word for deep connection with people based on a shared experience, if you will. The idea of brotherly love in the scripture is similar to this. We're able to understand the suffering and struggles of our brothers and sisters because we have them too. A few months ago, I had a, a really bad flu, and then a week later, Sue got it. I understood 
what she was going through because I had just been through it. I felt for her. God is tender-hearted toward us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God remembers what we're made out of. We don't think of ourselves as made out of dirt. You remember when God made Adam, he scooped it up, fashioned it, and breathed into him the breath of life? And so when God looks at us, he doesn't, he doesn't look at us and then look at himself in all of his magnificent power and splendor and say, why don't you get it? He's tender-hearted toward us. And God wants us to be tender-hearted toward one another. What this means to our interactions and our words is that we must approach people with a heart of understanding for their situation. Typically, when we get upset, we approach people thinking, I have a problem, and now you're going to hear about it. Rather than coming to them saying, I wonder how this looks from their perspective. And coming in a a compassionate mode, a tender-hearted mode. Problems have to be resolved. It's not godly to just push something aside that's a a sin or a weakness or an an offense. We have to work on things. But the question is, what is our mind and heart as we come into those conversations? Are we coming in saying, this is how they could be feeling, how they must be feeling. I need to be understanding of them. Our tendency, our tendency is to evaluate and determine why other people are acting in certain ways based on what is good for us. Rather than asking God to help us see their world and see their challenges. And I believe that the result of tenderheartedness is kindness. Kindness seems to be more about actions. Tenderheartedness more about thoughts and feelings. And again, God is our example. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the Most High. For He is kind. He is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Why is he kind to them? Because he understands they're made out of dust. Does that mean that God will look over, overlook their rebellion forever? No. In fact, there's specific scripture that tells us God will not be patient forever. But God approaches people with kindness. Therefore, you, you should be merciful just as your Father is also Merciful. We also read about God's kindness in this verse. Do you despise the riches of his goodness? That's the same Greek word. It's just translated differently. Do you despise the riches of his kindness? Forbearance, putting up with, and patience, not knowing that the the kindness of God has a purpose, and it's to lead you to repent, to change your mind and your behavior toward God. If God only allowed those who deserve salvation to become children of God, how many Christians would there be? How many? Zero. That's right, because none of us deserve. But we are graced. We are blessed. We are mercied. God is merciful toward us. 
because he remembers we are dust. His tender heart yields forth in kindness and goodness. And then the third word in this list, forgiveness, is the natural outflow of being tender-hearted and kind. The word here literally means to, to treat the offender with grace or with graciousness. This is what God wants our words to be. This is what it means to walk in love. Um, <clears throat> verse Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Be an imitator of God and walk in love as Christ has loved us. To be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving is to walk in the love of Christ. And that's because what we see here of the love of Christ is this. We love him because he first loved us. Was he tender-hearted and, and tender-hearted and kind and forgiving when we deserved it? No, he was tender-hearted, kind and forgiving and calling us to faith so that we would turn and say, "Yes, I believe in you and and become a child of God." We love him because he first loved us. Human love is 50-50. I'll meet you halfway. You come there, I'll come here. Human love is reciprocal. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. God's love is taking initiative to do what is needed for this other person. If God had waited till we would have something to give to him, we never would have gotten saved. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what, what do you more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Wow, there's a standard to aspire to. Our words need to arise from a heart which is formed around the love of God. So godly words are constructive and conductive and compassionate, and they are worshipful. Worshipful. Look at chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, he doesn't write it there, but I think it's quite fair to say, if you're not grieving the Holy Spirit, what are you doing to the Holy Spirit? You're blessing him. You're blessing him. It's one or the other. Sin grieves him. Righteousness blesses him. And even more clearly in chapter 5, verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself for a, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. A sweet-smelling aroma. Sweet-smelling aroma makes this a reference to the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Now, I, I don't think that God was trying to tell us that, that there was a sweet smell that came up off the altar as in, you know, somebody walks by with perfume and it smells sweet, quote-unquote. I think more so he was trying to tell us that when God's people from their heart offer an, a sacrifice, the result of that coming up to heaven is a pleasant thing for him. It is a blessing to him. And as such, he would call it a sweet aroma. The Bible tells us that when Christ offered himself, it was a sweet 
aroma to God. And he tells us in verse 1 that we're supposed to be imitating God and walking and dear children and walking as Christ walked, which means our words can be worshipful. Our words can honor God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. James chapter 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, brethren, knowing that we shall receive the greater judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. And if any does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. God expects us to control our words And he expects us to use them in a godly way so that they are honoring to him. Who are you trying to bless with your words? There there are two possibilities. Well, there's three possibilities. One is that you're trying to bless yourself. You're trying to accomplish your own will. You use your words to get your way. And so you are trying to bless yourself. The second possibility is that you are using your words to try to make other people happy. You're trying to bless other people. In the end, that is also, though, self-serving. Because the reason we try to please others is so what? They will like us. We want to say what they want to hear so that they will say, Oh, you're a nice person. You're a wonderful person. God says the fear of man is a snare. But if you're trying to please God with your words, that is worship. When we come here together, we worship God as a group, and that's good, that's wonderful. But God longs for us to live our lives as continual acts of worship through our words and our deeds. I have a wonderful new cement driveway at my house. My old driveway was in the process of retiring. When we moved in several years ago, it was already starting to retire, and uh, I patched the holes with some cold blacktop, which is a a cheap way to uh, fix things up. But it just kept sinking into the ground, and the concrete kept breaking up. One contractor gave me a bid to repair the damaged area and to put a new layer of blacktop over the top of the whole thing. But I opted to spend a little bit more and tear out the old sinking pavement and get the ground prepared and put in four inches of new concrete in the hope that it will last longer than I live there. The only way to to remove what is old in your life is to tear it out and to replace it with what is new. Sinful communication needs to be stopped and replaced or displaced by righteous words. Our words can impart grace to people, God's grace. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us. We want our words to honor you. And so they're going to have to change some. Help us with that. We like to say what we like to say. Help us to want to please you with our words enough to change what we do with our words. I pray in Christ's name, amen.